We are going to uh, pick up, we had a one-week break, we're going to pick up in chapter 5 tonight in Ephesians. And um, so I've titled this uh, Walk in the Light. Um, And again, my my desire is that we'll be able to try to keep the same um, context and theme that we have in the last few uh, messages um, the goal in this study is to really focus on the relationship and the correspondence of Paul's letter here to the Ephesians, um, of, of which he was an instrumental part in starting that church. So we're not going to go on a whole lot of rabbit trails. Um, I'm probably not going to go real deep in any word studies, but I just I think it's really important that we try to keep keep that theme of, okay, why is Paul writing to the Ephesians? Uh, that's very, very important. We could, uh, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to get into um, being filled with the Spirit. We're going to get into the husband-wife relationship. We could we could easily spend a study on any one of those, but I want, I'm more concerned about the whole, the big picture of what Paul's passing on to the Ephesians. You know, and again, you've heard me say before, and I'll I've got it in my notes here probably six or seven times, but application, application, application. Because we can, we can observe what the text says, we can interpret what the text says, but if we stop there, um, you know, we've, it's like coming to the edge of wanting to see something beautiful and then not being able to see it. So the application is very, very key. So as we're going through this letter from Paul to the Ephesians, we should be asking ourselves, and I'll be asking for us, um, you know, what can we learn through this, or must, what must we learn? Because there was a reason that God inspired Paul to write this to the Ephesians, and we'll be talking about that here in a few minutes. So uh, in way of review, just to kind of tie in the last two studies with this one, we talked about in chapters 1 through 3 that Paul took the time to lay out for the Ephesians. He wanted to demonstrate God's glorious provisions for them in Christ, their salvation, the eternal riches that they had in Christ, and on and on. And then in chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 3, we talked about Paul's appeal to the Ephesians to walk. And we had uh, talked that that's um, living in such a way that would be worthy of their calling. And then we talked in chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, about the one body, the one spirit, that there's one Lord, and that each part of the body um, needs to work together in proportion to how it's been gifted by the Lord um, so that it can bring nourishment to other parts of the body and that the body uh, grows. And then uh, the last time we had spent... uh, Chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, talking about, um, if I was to sum it up, putting on the new man. Paul talked about the old man, spent a little time, but then talked about, okay, what should um, the believer, um, what should this new man um, look like? So that's what we had talked about. So the preview for, for tonight, if I was to break it down, Chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, we're going to look at uh, Christ's example uh, for us. And then uh, verses 14 through 17, how we should walk. And then uh, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, the Spirit's uh, filling of the believer. 
and the three byproducts of that. And then we're just going to touch on tonight. We're going to end in five. We'll pick up next week in six. But uh, there's basically Paul talks about four different relationships as a believer now, how, how it is that we should interact. And uh, we'll start tonight. We'll touch on the, the husband-wife uh, relationship, and then next time it will be the uh, child to the parent, and um, it would be servants to their masters, and then masters to their servants the next time. So we'll just touch on the first relationship tonight. So if we set the stage, um, I'll just I'll ask some questions for all of us. But w- one of the things in the uh, as you study the Bible uh, in the observation phase is. You know, you're not necessarily trying to find answers. You're just asking the who, what, where, when, why, and how. So I mentioned some of this in uh, the last few studies, but I wanted to uh, tie in again just to keep, you know, in the back of our mind as we're reading this letter. So we know that Paul was essentially the father of the Ephesian church. Um, historians say that Paul remained longer in the city of Ephesus than any other one place during all of his missionary journeys. Uh, we know that on his second missionary journey, which would be his, his first stop in Ephesus, this was, can be found in Acts 18, verses 19 through 21, he spent a very short time in Ephesus, and this was approximately A.D. 53. Then on his third missionary journey, this would be his second um, stop in Ephesus. This was in the, about two years later, so this would be A.D. 55. And again, um, the scriptures record for us in Acts 19 that he was, at, on that visit, he was um, there for approximately two plus years in Ephesus. Then, as he uh, on that third missionary journey, as he circled around, he came back kind of down down the on the bottom, and he had sent uh, for the Ephesian elders. He 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 wanted to uh, get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, so he wasn't actually able to revisit Ephesus. But he had called from Miletus the elders, and that's found in Acts twenty. And we're going to actually spend some time reading that account. So that would have been at the end of his third missionary journey. Uh, We know that the writing of this book, uh, we'll touch on it next week um, as we get to the end in six, but we know that Paul wrote this while he was in house arrest in Rome. So that that is a fact, and that was um, written about the year A.D. 62. So... First missionary journey, um, A.D. 53, he spent time in Ephesus. Then two years later, in 55, he spent another two years. So by the time he had left Ephesus, it would have been about A.D. 57. Then he made his way around and uh, finally back to Jerusalem. So when he wrote this letter, though, this letter was written in A.D. 62, so approximately five years after he would have been totally done ministering in uh, Ephesus. Um, I haven't really touched on this a lot, but uh, I do think it's important to, to mention uh, Ephesus at the time 
was the seat of idolatry in the world. They they had the you know the temple Diana. Uh, it was it was 400 feet in length, 220 feet wide. It had 127 60 foot columns. It was a very massive structure, and and this is really that part of the world was very much into idolatry and uh, worshiping of of the uh, the um, the temple uh, Diana. Um, and I thought it also important um, to note that it does not seem as though there was any specific sin issue in the church that Paul was necessarily writing this letter um, to the Ephesians. In some of his other um, uh, writings, you can tell uh, that he was writing and, and, and encouraging the church to maybe correct somebody that was, was in sin. But in, in this case, it, it does not seem like he has specifically um, wrote the letter to address um, necessarily issues in the church in Ephesus, but it was more of a general. So as I was preparing for the study, you know, the question begs, why, why is Paul writing this letter? Um, he had spent, you know, three, total of three years with them, and we'll read um, in the account in Acts that he, he literally said, he, I never, I, I taught you publicly day in and day out for a period of uh, two plus years. So he had spent a lot of time teaching them. So, you know, it begs the question, why, why is Paul writing the letter? And uh, spoiler alert, I don't have any, you know, concrete uh, evidence of why. Um, but again, if we go back to the first study, we talked about the Holy Spirit, and we talked about if we believe this is God's inspired word, then the Holy Spirit works through the authors to, to complete you know, the work that he wants. And also, the Holy Spirit orders things the way that he wants. So I just think it's very important that we remember uh, we don't sit inside Paul's head, but he obviously was moved by the Holy Spirit after five years. While he was in prison in Rome, he felt the need to write to the Ephesians, to tell them these glorious truths, to give them some practical encouragement. So I think that's very uh, important. So, you know, obviously we need to hear tonight when we go through these scriptures, we need we need to apply them to our lives. We need to, you know, Ephesians, uh, Appletonians, we need to take these scriptures and we take them to heart and ask the Lord what he has for us. Uh, I will tell you there are two respected commentators as I was studying that believe that essentially Paul wrote the letter because he wanted to share uh, with the believers truths that he had further learned after he had spent the time with them. You know, again, I think, uh, you know, we look at the Apostle Paul and some of his writings and we think, boy, this guy, you know, he really, he really had it going on. He knew what was going on. But, you know, I thought that was uh, very interesting on those commentators that, you know, Paul, Paul was growing also and he was traveling the world and spending a lot of time with believers and getting to know Christ. So, I, I thought that was a very interesting motivation that the Holy Spirit might have used is that Paul just wanted to share with the believers what he had further learned about Christ. Because if you really examine Paul's writings, 
if you watch the language that he writes, what he writes, he has just the, an immense amount of love for believers. I know when I first got saved, I, you know, I read, I kind of tore through the New Testament pretty quick, and I thought this Paul guy, he's kind of, he's a bit abrasive, he's kind of rough. But if you if you really look at the letters and the language and look at the actions of Paul, he was always about trying to encourage the church, trying to equip the church. Um, so I believe one of the reasons the Holy Spirit used Paul when he was sitting there in Rome was because of his love for the Ephesians. Um, and again, he was essentially the father of this church that he wanted to encourage them. So to help us with that, if everybody could turn over to Acts chapter 20, we'll start in verse 17. So as I read through this um, I'm just kind of setting the stage, but just think about, about the care and concern that Paul has for the Ephesians. So we'll pick this up. Again, this would be after Paul had already spent his two-plus years. He's making his way around Asia, and he's coming down. And Miletus is, I don't, you know, we'll just say like 50 miles from Ephesus. It's right there on the coast. He ended up being Miletus, he wanted to get to Jerusalem, so he called for the Ephesian elders to come because he wanted to speak with them. So let's um, read, uh, we'll read 17 through 38, and again, just in context, keep in mind what it is and how it is Paul is trying to encourage the church. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know that from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mine, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witness in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide in me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to, to declare unto you all the gospel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased 
not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Ye, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and he prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. So that was, uh, to my knowledge, that was the, the last time that Paul had physically seen any of the Ephesians, and it was the, the elders. So again, that was five years before the, uh, what we're reading uh, tonight in Ephesians. That was five years before. But can, can you see the love that he had for them? He was concerned about them spiritually, and, and I just thought that was a beautiful letter that he, um, that he wrote you know, for the elders to take back to the church. So that brings us up to our study. Chapter 5. Again, continuing from last time, we'll just take the first two verses. So Paul says to them, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So I titled this The Charge. You know, again, this is, we've talked about it several times. What Paul will do is he'll talk, he'll refer back to something that he taught them, and then he gives them a charge. Like in chapter 4, he said, I therefore. Uh, In chapter 17, the start of uh, last study, he said, this I say therefore. So he was referring back to chapter 4. So here he does the same thing. He says, be Ye therefore followers of God. So what was Paul doing? He was pointing them back to um, chapter 4 where he had just got done talking about this new man. And he talked about, you know, when he said that to the man uh, in 28, uh, should steal no more, no let, let no corrupt communication uh, come out of your mouth, but that which is uh, good for edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. So Paul was pointing them back to, you know, the very lengthy discussion that he was having on this new man and that new person in Christ that the Ephesians should be. And so he said, be ye therefore followers of God. And the followers there in the uh, Greek has the, has the uh, connotation of imitator you know, in imitators. So, you know, those of us who've had children or if you just watch little children, it's, it's, it's really uh, neat to just watch them. You know, if it's a little girl, she might be having her apron on and she's pretending like she's cooking, she's imitating mom, or, or maybe you've got the little boy outside and he's got his, uh, his little lawnmower that's not really chopping anything up, but he's, you know, walking along, imitating, doing what dad's doing. Um, 
I just, I think that's a great word. He, so we are to be followers or imitators of God. This, this was the charge that Paul was giving to the Ephesian believers. So the application for us is in our daily life, whether it's at the grocery store, at work, um, you know, serving here at church, in the community, whatever it is, are we imitators or followers of Christ in all that we do and say? And, and then Paul says that they are to walk in love. And again, this is a theme that, you know, if you've um, been at the previous studies, this is no less than probably the third time that Paul has talking about this walking in love. And, and we talked that, that what that walking in love means is, what is your life characterized by? What is it occupied with? That whenever you see that expression, walk in whatever it is. So he says, we are to walk in love as Christ has loved us. And obviously the example, Christ offering himself, it says here, and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So the application is we are to have, you know, love one for another. We were taught in chapter 4 that we are to be a new man, and we had, were taught earlier in chapter 4 that we are um, a part of the body and we're supposed to be working as God has gifted us to bring nourishment to the other parts of the body. And then we're a new man. We're a new man in Christ. So that should change how we're thinking and acting with those people. Well, how about loving or giving ourselves as an offering? There, There's times when the Lord might be calling us uh, for a brother or sister in the church um, you know, we've, we've got it right here in the pages of Scripture. Christ has loved us and has given himself for us. And, you know, we should do the same. So I have on here for application, where are you? And I ask myself the same question, where am I on the love meter? You know, and if I'm being honest, sometimes my love meter is, is not very high. I love the Lord and, you know, I seek to get in his word and pray, but sometimes... You know, this type of sacrificial love, um, my love meter needs, needs some, some boosting up. So I just thought that was great encouragement and a great charge that the Ephesians um, were given uh, by Paul. So notice that at the end of uh, 2 and starting at 3, he says, but. So this is a contrast. So Paul is telling the Ephesians, be imitators of Christ. Be sacrificial one for another, loving one another. But, so we have a contrast. He's going he's gonna to tell us in verses 3 and 4, this is, this is the type of behavior that you must, as believers, um, you know, forego. But fornication, in all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. So Paul says, avoid these ungodly behaviors. And he made it very clear down in 5, he says, For this you know that no whoremonger, no unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. So, Paul is drawing a stark contrast between 
what he's charging them they should do and what they should avoid. Uh, fornication here in the Greek uh, is you know, basically har- harlotry or idolatry, and uncleanness is impurity, and then the covetousness is greediness and extortion. And then uh, w- one of the ones that's uh, quite often overlooked, and, and I just wanted to spend just a minute in camp on it, is this um, idea of, in verse 4, nor foolish talking nor jesting. And what does that foolish talking? In the Greek, it's, it's buffoonery, it's silly talk, senseless idle chatter with no purpose. It doesn't necessarily say that it's, you know, vulgar or anything or sinful, but it's just not really with a purpose. It's just, it's foolishness. And, and Paul says that it's not convenient. That type of talking is not convenient. And, um, Matthew twelve thirty six, uh, Jesus, when he was talking, had had um, when he was uh, speaking to the crowd, he says, "But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account therefore in the day of judgment." I think it's a very good encouragement for us, and I'm not saying we have to um, microanalyze every word that we say, but again, to be thoughtful and purposeful in what we are saying to those around us, because what we are saying should be building them up, should be encouraging them, we should be loving them. And then Paul says, this foolish talking or jesting, he said, it's not convenient, but again we see another contrast in uh, verse 4b, says, but rather giving of thanks. So the the giving of thanks here has has more of a, an intent, a purpose for it. Um, it's, you know, the meeting of the brethren to get together to engage in the Lord's service. It could be, you know, the women's study tomorrow. It could be men's prayer. It could be just time of fellowship with brothers and sisters here at church. But Paul says, listen, fornication, uncleanness, covetous, that has no place for the believer. You're to be imitators of Christ. And then he says, you know, put away this filthiness, this foolish talking. What what you need to be concerned with is giving thanks, seeking the Lord, engaging in the Lord's service. Um, I like the way Barnes said it. He said, uh, regarding this verse, he said, men are social in nature, and if they do not assemble for good purposes, they will assemble for bad purposes. And isn't that true? I mean, I don't watch TV, but if if you watch any of the news uh, social media, I mean, you you have problems everywhere because man is 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 assembling, and ninety nine percent of the time it's not for good purposes. So I I felt like that was very encouraging, you know that that this is what we should be known as Christians for giving thanks and and doing the service of the Lord. And then in Ephesians five through eleven, I'll read that. But here we are told what and who to avoid. Uh, Verse 5, For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, 
For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, contrast, but rather, as a believer, we are to reprove them. So what does Paul say? He says, stay away from these men with these vain words. And, and he tells the Ephesians, don't, don't be uh, partakers with their darkness. We are to have no fellowship with darkness. Um, and, you know, in, the, in essence, what does fellowship mean? It means sharing company or co-participating with somebody. That's what fellowship is. In the Christian world, we talk about it all the time. Oh, that was great fellowship. We're talking about the company that we share with brothers and sisters, uh, with believers. But Paul is saying, have no fellowship with darkness. Now, as as I was reading um, 11b, I had stopped to point out the contrast. Paul says, okay, you are not to be, you know, having anything to do uh, with fellowship with the unfruitful work of darkness. But, again, here's the contrast. He says, rather reprove them. And it doesn't say it in the text, but essentially what it's saying is, as Christians, don't, you know, hang around... uh, the unfruitful works of darkness, but what you can do as believers is you should be reproving them by the life that that you lead. So I'd like to read verses 11 through 13 and come back and comment on those a little bit. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful work of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. So this this idea of reproving them, um, Warren Wiersbe, as I was studying, he had a great little thing that I wanted to read. Um, I had to read it over a few times that I could understand it. But he had said, uh, just imagine that you're going to visit somebody in the hospital, okay? The physical health of a person, those of us who are healthy, we go to the hospital to see our loved one. Unconsciously, because of our health, we expose the handicaps and the sickness of the people in the hospital that we visit. Wearsby likens that to reproving the works of darkness, he says, so the Christian exposes the darkness and sin around him just by living like a Christian. I just thought that was a, a wonderful thought that, you know, as a, as a physical, healthy person, they don't think anything. They go to the hospital. They're, they're going to, you know, take care of their loved ones to see them. They don't realize it, but unconsciously, because of their health, because of how healthy they are, they're exposing the sickness that is there. Well, that's what we are to do as Christians. That's how we can reprove the works of darkness is by us living like Christians and, you know, letting our light shine. So, you know, I, I think that's a great application and a great challenge. Um, you know, it's not very easy at times to, when you really dig in and study the, the word and you have to teach the word because if you're going to, 
truly do it with humility, uh, you have to ask yourself every single question that I might be asking you. And I, I don't know that um, I am, you know, in my life, I, I hope, I pray, but, I, you know, I, I think it's very important, and it's definitely something that I'm going to be praying about. Is my Christian life going to be exposing the darkness and the sin around me, just like the healthy person that goes to the hospital? Um, and, I, and again, some cross-references that I thought that would uh, encourage us in this area about, um, remember the title I said is Walking in the Light? Ma- Matthew 5.14, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. And again, if if our light is never, never uh, you know, never goes out, never shines, uh, or is very lightly uh, lit, you know, we, we cannot reprove um, the works of darkness. And then in John 3.20, um, For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And again, it's not like we have to go out there looking for evil. Um, there's, there's plenty of evil out there, but just know and be encouraged that as you're walking with the Lord, as, as you're... Um, out in the community, wherever it is, in your home, at work, the the choices you make and the degree to which you are walking in the Spirit, you are reproving darkness just by the way in which you're walking. And then in uh, verse 14, Paul says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now, we could go on all kinds of rabbit trails. There's many commentators who refer to Isaiah 61, another one to a, um, a different chapter and verse in Isaiah, and saying this is what this scripture was talking about. But this is kind of interjected because this isn't, in context, it does not look like this is Paul saying this. You know, he, he certainly is saying uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these other things to the Ephesians. But all of a sudden, in verse 14, he just kind of bolts out there and says, Wherefore, he says, Awake thou that sleepest, um, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Um, some of the commentators, the possible reference here is just talking about the Lord himself, or in totality, the scriptures themselves, Again, obviously, it does not seem in context that it's Paul saying this, but he's pointing to an even higher authority. And again, have we not been given light? We've been raised from the dead. We were dead in our sins before, but because of Christ's resurrection, we, through faith in him, we've been raised to a new life. And and so, again, this is why I've titled this Walk in the Light, because if if we are walking in the light, then you know we can... We can be a light to a dark world, and we can also be a light to those who are yet to come to Christ. And how are we to walk? Ephesians five fifteen through 17, speaking about walking. So Paul gives them, after this uh, little break in 14, he gives them um, the recipe on how they are to walk. He says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding 
what the will of the Lord is. And circumspectly there means uh, to be diligent. It comes from two Greek words, which means to look to be looking all around. And it has uh, the idea circumspectly of precision, accuracy, and exactness. So again, we see this, this phrase, see that you walk. And again, it's not literally talking about walking, but Paul is saying, see that your life is characterized by that, that this is what your life is occupied that you're being circumspect, not as fools, but as the wise. Um, so, you know, as wise. Wise people, if we're following the Lord, and the beginning of, is, if, of wisdom is seeking the Lord, but our wisdom comes from the Lord, so we should be seeking the Lord and asking him. But as I was studying here um, in this uh, verses 15 and 16 and 17, um, some of the commentators had with it kind of talking about not as Christians, not drifting, but again, circumspectly means precision, accuracy, and exactness. So we as Christians should be wise. We should be asking the Lord for direction. We should be praying. We should be seeking his will. And we should be looking for opportunities around us to minister to people. It could be ministering to our brothers and sisters, or it might be a neighbor, someone that needs to be ministered to. Um, they might not be saved, but they need to see the love of God or just through your behavior that they would be convicted. Um, and so one of the examples that I had from uh, one of the most famed uh, movies that I thought was a good idea for us as Christians um, to really contemplate on this, not just as Christians drifting around, but being intent, being purposeful in what the Lord has for us. Um, I, I just wrote down here the example of, if any of you have uh, seen Schindler's List, but Oscar Schindler, um, I googled it, and the, the statistics uh, show that approximately 1,200 Jews he was saved, obviously, during, during the, uh, the war when Jews were, were being persecuted. But 1,200 Jews were saved. He made a conscious, intentional, calculated decision to run his business in such a way that he could hire Jews and ultimately um, save them. I know that there's, um, I don't want to misquote, but I know that there's, um, another ministry uh, going on over, I think, in Afghanistan where there's um, some Christians, and, but there, there is a gentleman who heads up that ministry that he, is, he has been being in, precise and accurate. He's literally praying and asking other believers to take part, and they're literally are rescuing, sometimes with, with just money per, per person, they're rescuing uh, believers out of that country, out of um, you know the turmoil and in the situation that they're in. So I say all that to say that this is how we are to be occupied daily. And again, I'm not saying we should be you know looking around. Oh, did I miss an opportunity? But we need to be very precise. And again, not in our own strength, 
in the Lord's will, but we should not just be floating around, drifting around, and just saying, okay, Lord, we'll see what happens today. We should be looking for those opportunities, and we should be, as Paul says here, redeeming the time. And I know maybe every generation thinks it, but how many of us cannot agree more that the times that we live in right now are evil beyond you know, compare. So we should be redeeming the time. And again, if we're walking circumspectly, if we're walk, walking with precision and asking the Lord, then, then we certainly, you know, can redeem the time. And then Paul says that, um, I just lost it here for a second. Uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm sorry. I wanted to read verse 18. So Paul says, uh, in 17, wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So he's saying to believers there in Ephesus, you, you need to seek the Lord. The Lord is going to show you what his will is, but seek him for it. And he says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. But, so we have a contrast here. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And here, when he talks about being filled with the Spirit, um, you, you know, again, this is not a, a command uh, from Paul to just like a few Ephesians. He's, remember, he's writing to the entire Ephesian church. He's saying, be filled with the Spirit. And the verb is in the present tense, which means actually to keep on being filled. It's not just, you know, like, okay, be filled. It's to keep on being filled, and the verb also has a passive um, connotation to it. And, and what do I mean by that? We do, not, we do not fill, but what we do is we permit the Spirit to fill us. So be filled with the Spirit is what Paul is telling them to do. And, you know, again, the... the, the 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 drunkenness or intoxication, what does that really mean? If someone's intoxicated with anything, it means that they are controlled or overcome by something. So Paul's saying, listen, don't be drunk with wine in excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled, be controlled by the Spirit in your mind, in your emotions, in your will, and again, with what you say. And then Paul in... Um, verses 19 through 21, after he just got done telling the Ephesians that they were to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, um, then what we see is three, um, what I call byproducts of being uh, filled, this continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In verse 19, he says, Speak to yourselves in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So the first one is joy. Uh, Verse 19, he he here talks about speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns, uh, singing melody. Um, I just titled this joy. Uh, joy is in the Galatians 5.22 in the list there of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Joy is one of them. And 
what this joy means is it, we're not talking about happiness. Uh, joy is something different, but uh, we are not talking about a thermometer, but we're talking about a thermostat. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, a thermometer just tells us if something's hot or cold, whereas a thermostat controls something. And the point is the kind of joy that can come when we are continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is, um, it is something that our circumstances cannot dictate whether we're joyful or not, but we are joyful despite what our circumstances are. Wearsby, uh, uh, to sum this up, said, Christian joy is a deep experience of adequacy and confidence in spite of the circumstances around us. And then I immediately thought about the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.11 when he was speaking to the Philippians. He said, he said that he had learned to be content in whatever state he was in. You know, again, he went through many beatings and many times he was within inches of his life. But this joy that we can have is, um, it's again, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's not determined by our circumstances, but it is something uh, that the Christian is through their circumstances. And then in verse 20, uh, the giving thanks always for all things, um, just general thankfulness. Paul says, you know, if you're being filled continually with the Holy Spirit, you know, you're going to be a thankful person. It's going to give you the right godly perspective on whatever you're going through. It could be a bad day at work. It could be a bad year at work. Um, neighbor that's bothering you, whatever it is, but it can give you that right godly perspective. And, you know, essentially, being thankful, um, and I know Pastor Dwight had talked, um, I think it was last Sunday, on or a couple Sundays ago on thankfulness, that, you know, there, there are situations where it's hard to be thankful for, and you have to take the whole totality of scriptures but, you know, we can, uh, when we see God's sovereignty working in and through our lives, even though circumstances can be difficult, that's when we can be thankful. We can say, Lord, you know, I don't understand this pain that I'm going through. I know you have a plan and purpose for it. You know, help me to be thankful. Um, you can choose to be thankful. But really, thankfulness is also trusting his sovereignty in whatever situation you're in. Because, remember, we... We, we see, you know, through a glass dimly. Um, the Lord told us his ways are not our ways. He's doing things in and through our life that we don't always understand. And sometimes this side of heaven we never will understand. Or sometimes it just takes years and time uh, to bring it to fruition where we see what God was doing. But um, if we are continually filled, have this filling of the Holy Spirit, we can be thankful in whatever circumstance we are in. And now we're going to move into the first of the relationships that Paul is going to um, be encouraging the Ephesian uh, believers. And that is found in chapter 5, verses 23 through 33. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, 
even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourish and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So, I hope this isn't too big of a jump, but remember, the Ephesian was, you know, they were just like we were when we were dead in our sins. The very idolatrous city, they, they came to Christ. Paul taught them for several years. And, and now he's writing this letter, you know, several years later. Um, and again, if you, if you keep the context of all the studies together, I think it's very important, even though Paul isn't, isn't saying it. But, you know, he talked about the glorious promises we have. Then he talked about, you know, one body, um, you know, the body working together. Then he talked about the new man. So what he's going to do now is we're going to talk the, about the first relationship. Next week we will touch on the other three relationships and then follow up with the, the armor of God. But what Paul is doing is he's encouraging the Ephesians, you know, I don't know how the rest of Ephesus was living, but I'm pretty sure it was pretty pagan. And they, their relationships were not, you know, being conducted the way the Lord would want them. So Paul is telling them, he's instructing the Ephesians on how it is that they um, should be um, in these relationships. And the first one is the husband-wife relationship. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, you know, there's been many commentators and many studies, you, you know, you could, you could spend, you know, days on the whole submission and the wives and the husband, the husband being the head. But I, one of the things that I wanted to point to is, I wanted to point uh, first, go to uh, verse 27. I just find this, um, this is how husbands should love um, their wives, uh, obviously pointing to the way the Lord loves his church. And that's always the ultimate thing. In this whole section here, you will see Paul talks about how our hus- uh, us husbands should love our wives, but his ultimate thing is he's pointing to Jesus and the church. And he said, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. I don't know about you, but, you know, um, I sin every single day, and there's there's things, Paul, like Paul said, I, I do the things that I don't want to do, and the things that I want to do, I don't do. But I, I just think that is a beautiful picture of how the Lord sees us, 
He sees us, his church, as having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And if any, any of us are honest with ourselves, we know that we are very uh, wrinkled. We are very spotted. But this is how the Lord uh, sees us. I just think it's a beautiful thing. And then as, as Paul is um, you know, writing this and he's talking about no man ever hated his body and he talks about for we are members of his body, of his flesh, talking about the Lord. And then for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and a lot of us have heard that at weddings and so forth. And the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So again, Paul points, he got done talking about, you know, the husband, you know, dying for his wife and loving her. And, and he talks about this beautiful relationship. But again, he says this great mystery. He said it's concerning Christ and the church. That's what he's pointing to as the, you know, the most supreme thing is. And Barnes said here, he said, the great mystery that he refers to is not to marriage, but refers solely to the union of the Redeemer and his people. And again, Paul immediately after that says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Again, he's wanting to put the emphasis there. And then he says, nevertheless, let every one of you, meaning us husbands, in particular, so love his wife even as himself. And and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So Paul's not negating it. He's not saying husbands don't treat your wives like Christ um, treats the church. But what he's saying is the great mystery about the two becoming one, Christ and the church, that that, that is his ultimate, you know, that's what he's looking to, and that's what he's wanting the Ephesians to look to. So, Again, if we think about the Ephesian believers, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit needed to inspire Paul to write to the Ephesians. I can't sit in Paul's head and say I know exactly the reason, but if you look in context of the language and what he's choosing to write, right now he's writing to the husbands, uh, and the wives, and he's saying, wives, you should be submissive as Christ is the head of the church. And husbands, this is how you are to love your wife. You should love her like Christ. So he's saying, listen, again, if we, if we take everything in totality, new man, he talked about a new man. He talked about the giftings that the Lord had given. Um, you know, he's saying, because this is who you are, this new position you have in Christ, this is how you should be as a husband. Put away, you know, however long you lived, 30 years, whatever you were married, Ephesian believers, put that away. This is how you should be treating your wife. Um, and again, we're going to talk next week about uh, parents and children, but essentially we're talking about the home environment, and Paul is telling them how they should be conducting these relationships. And I just wanted to take a minute uh, as we speak to the husbands loving your wives. And again, if we think about all of the groundwork that Paul has laid um, for the Ephesians and told them all of the great promises they have about, you know, being one body, working together, nourishment, 
um, that, that Christ gives giftings and that they are to be used for the edifying of the body, that we are a new man, that we are supposed to walk in the light and be imitators of Christ. Now he's asking husbands to love your wives. So again, I just have a little list and then I want to ask a question to us husbands. So God bestows upon us something that we don't deserve, salvation, right? I mean, we, we have a debt that we cannot pay. We have glorious promises, not only now, but also future promises. We are one body working together for the profit of the whole. Paul also, if you remember, said, don't be high-minded, but be meek in the giftings that you have. And he said to put on the new man, that was in chapter 4. And then we just learned tonight, we are to be imitators of Christ. We are to be the light of the world. We are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Then how can't we, if we take all of that into you know, our thought process and, and get it down into our heart, how can't we love our wives as verses 25 through 33 tells us, you know, this is what Paul is saying. Listen, you need to rethink Ephesian believers. Wives, you need to submit to your husbands. But husbands, you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And again, it can't be done with a husband just trying to buck up and say, oh, I'm going to be the best husband. It, it only... It only comes by seeking the Lord's will, being in his word, being filled with the Holy Spirit, putting on the new man, all of the things that we've talked about up until this time. And then, then I would say, a husband who's walking in that way, then it is very easy for him to love his wife and very easy for him to lay down his life for his wife and, and see her as not having any spot or wrinkle. And again, I think... Often it's overlooked where this great mystery, and I think that's why Paul was inspired to write, I speak concerning Christ and the church because the husband is the head of the house. But if he's looking at what Christ, at this wonderful joining of Christ and the church, that we've become one, that he has sacrificially died, and, and that he sees the church as being spotless, then I think it's a lot easier for a husband to love his uh, wife, the way Christ loved the church, if he's looking at Christ for the model. So that's it for tonight. And next week, we will follow up again with the next uh, three relationships. Uh, that would be parents um, or children and parents, and then it was servants, how they are to interact with their masters, and conversely, how masters are supposed to uh, interact and relate to their servants. And then finally, we're going to follow up with uh, uh, Paul's uh, encouragement to put on the whole armor of God. So Father, we come before you this evening. We thank you for your text. We thank you, Lord, for your example. And we know that every, every jot and tittle on the pages of scripture are beneficial, are profitable for us. And we pray, Lord, we know intellectually we might understand uh, what the scriptures say, but we cannot do any of this, Lord, in our own strength. And so we are asking that you would just um, fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, that we would be controlled by your Holy Spirit, that we would be in, in, intentional in the way in which we walk as Christians, that we would walk in the light. 
We have so many glorious promises, Father, of what you've done in our lives. And uh, we just want to give you all the praise and the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.